joined me on this adventure in British history, meeting the Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. As you know, I've recently uploaded episode number 25, and we are getting close to 20,000 downloads. I just can't thank you enough. I thought it might be fun to look back at a previous episode this week. I recently shared some of my favorite books about the spies in the court of Queen Elizabeth I. That's one of my most popular topics. I've spoken about it to groups in Washington, D.C., New York, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco, Atlanta, and recently at TudorCon. So this week, let's return to the scandals, intrigues, betrayals, to the intercepted messages and foreign interference, to a time when politics was personal and anything was possible. It's actually true today, and it was certainly true in the court of Queen Elizabeth I. Hello, today we're traveling back in time to the birthplace of modern espionage, the court of Queen Elizabeth I. It's time to sneak into the world of Tudor spies. When we think of secret keepers, hidden codes, disguises, foreign interference, intercepted messages, encrypted communication, and double agents, we might think that's a modern story. Add specialized training and the option of planting someone secretly in a foreign government, and we might start looking for James Bond. But those experiences are not as modern as we might think. In fact, the Tudor courts were hotbeds of secrets and spies. After all, the Tudors were an upstart royal family without deep pockets of support throughout Europe. The possibility of their overthrow might mean a significant victory for France or Spain. The world was a dangerous place in the 16th century. Henry VIII made things worse, which might not come as a huge surprise, when he added religion to the mix. He broke with the Catholic Church, denied the authority of the Pope, and proclaimed himself supreme head of the Church of England. Religious zealots throughout Europe recognized the dissension in England over religion as an opportunity to gain power. The chaos in religious policy and its political implications laid the foundation for treachery, betrayal, and deception. And one element made this time, particularly as as we move into the reign of Elizabeth I, a hotbed of what was then called spirey. That element was literacy. The printing press changed life completely. Multiple copies of a text could be printed and distributed for a comparatively low price. Pamphlets expressing ideas supporting or challenging the monarchy could be printed and handed out to the public. As more texts became available, more people learned to read. People could access the Bible and books about radical religious beliefs and practices. Reformers, conservatives, and rebels made posters and printed tracts, spreading a call to arms against everyone else. People now had the ability to deliver messages across distances and in large groups. Literacy became a weapon in the war of religion. Once literacy makes communication this widespread, there's an immediate desire to control it. Enter the spies. Elizabeth's court was especially vulnerable to foreign intervention. Her claim to the throne was suspect on many levels. Her own father, Henry VIII, had declared her illegitimate. 
her half-sister, Mary I, passed laws that reinforced Elizabeth's illegitimacy. Basically, Catholics believed Elizabeth had no right to the throne. From the day of her accession, Elizabeth's reign was publicly questioned. Henri II of France immediately claimed the English throne for his daughter-in-law, Mary, Queen of Scots. The Pope called Elizabeth a usurper, and many of Elizabeth's own Catholic bishops refused to crown her. Her reign was vulnerable to infiltration by foreign agents. With enemies all over Europe, Elizabeth needed friends, and fortunately, she had them. One of the most important was William Cecil, who was with Elizabeth at Hatfield when she first learned she was the new Queen of England. Elizabeth made Cecil her principal secretary, her first and most important royal appointment. He would work alongside her for the next 40 years, counseling and sometimes arguing with his royal mistress. Elizabeth's first instruction to Cecil was that he be, quote, faithful to the state and without any respect of my private will, give me the counsel you think best, end quote. And he did just that. When he disagreed with the queen, he told her so. Sometimes she got angry, but disagreements did not end their partnership. When he tried to retire toward the end of his life, she said she couldn't get on without him. Some scholars say that Cecil's impact on Elizabeth and her reign is so significant that England's history during this time cannot be written without referencing William Cecil. Cecil built a strong team to manage Elizabeth's government. One of his key allies in ensuring the Queen's safety and guarding against foreign and domestic terror was Francis Walsingham. Walsingham was an ardent Protestant. He had fled England during the reign of Catholic Mary I and spent that time furthering contracts all across Europe. When Elizabeth took the throne, Walsingham returned to England and Cecil brought him into Elizabeth's inner circle. As ambassador to France, Walsingham saw firsthand the slaughter of Protestant men, women, and children during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre in 1572. This showed him what could happen to Protestants anywhere, including England. He returned to Elizabeth's court with a determination to do whatever it took to preserve the safety of Protestant England by preserving Elizabeth's life and reign. Cecil ultimately put Walsingham in charge of Elizabeth's spy network. Walsingham made use of all those years spent traveling and developing relationships to place agents all around Europe. He is often referred to as Elizabeth's spy master. The first 10 years of Elizabeth's reign saw relative peace with Catholics at home and abroad. But suddenly there were significant rebellions attempting to depose Elizabeth. Leaders of the Revolt of the Northern Earls, or Northern Rebellion, of 1569 amassed 6,000 men to fight against the Queen. They didn't find much other popular support, and they were defeated by the Queen's forces. But even after this defeat, English Catholics continued to rebel against Queen Elizabeth. Then in 1570, Pope Pius V issued the Regnans in Excelsis bull that excommunicated Elizabeth, identified her as a, quote, pretended Queen of England and servant of crime, end quote, and commanded all Catholics to disregard her laws. He even threatened to excommunicate any English Catholic who obeyed the Queen, and he exonerated anyone who took whatever action necessary to get rid of her. This gave impetus to the Rodolfi plot to assassinate the Queen. Why this flurry of rebellions and plotting all of a sudden after years of relative peace? The Northern Rebellion in 1569, the excommunication and call for English Catholics to eliminate the Queen in 1570, and that Rodolfi plot in 1571? 
Well, everything had changed in 1568 with the arrival of Mary, Queen of Scots. Mary had been Queen Consort of France in 1560 when her husband, François, took the throne. Sadly, he died little more than a year later. Mary returned to Scotland to take up the throne there in 1561. She had been Queen of Scotland since she was six days old, but had been sent to France as a young girl and had never actually ruled Scotland. Upon her arrival, Mary met with the lords who had been ruling in her absence, headed by her half-brother, the Earl of Moray. She was given permission to practice her Catholic religion, but Scotland had turned largely Protestant by this time. Soon, Mary went against the wishes of Elizabeth and her Scottish lords and married her cousin, Henry Stuart, Lord Darnley. Mary quickly became pregnant, but the marriage fell apart. After Darnley participated in the murder of Mary's friend and secretary, David Rizzio, Mary turned to James Hepburn, Lord Bothwell, for support. Her relationship with Bothwell came under intense scrutiny when Darnley was murdered in 1567 and Bothwell was accused of the crime. Mary's marriage to Bothwell infuriated the Scottish lords. Mary was forced from her throne in favor of her baby son, who was crowned James VI. The next year, 1568, Mary escaped imprisonment in Scotland and fled to England. Mary arrived in England, assuming Elizabeth would equip her with an army to return and claim the Scottish throne. But the English court wanted to keep working with Moray, a Protestant who was friendly to their cause. So after an inconclusive investigation into Mary's possible involvement in Darnley's murder, it was decided she would remain in England. This meant the Catholic alternative to Elizabeth was right there, ready to take the throne. Each of the plots that followed, beginning right after Mary's arrival in England, had an end result of replacing Elizabeth with Mary as Queen of England. Mary's presence in England represented a real danger to the survival of Elizabeth and Protestantism. Because of the danger Mary posed, her movements and communication were monitored and restricted. She was kept as a guest in the homes of many of Elizabeth's most loyal subjects. Throughout the 1570s and 80s, Mary continued to reach out to supporters in England and abroad. Mary knew her letters to friends were being monitored, so she used an elaborate system of ciphers and codes in her correspondence. Cecil and Walsingham knew this. They also knew that Mary wanted to communicate with Catholics who wished to assassinate Elizabeth and put Mary on the throne. They became more worried when Protestant leaders, including the Earl of Moray, were assassinated. They wanted Mary gone, so they devised a way to beat her at her own game. The key players in Elizabeth's court had their own ciphers and codes. For example, when corresponding with Elizabeth, one of her spy masters, John D., signed his name with two circles and a horizontal and vertical line. We see that today as 007. 007. Walsingham planted a double agent named Ballard among those who reached out to Mary. Ballard's friend, Antony Babington, came up with a plot in 1586 to elicit foreign support for an invasion of England that would help English Catholics assassinate Elizabeth. Babington smuggled letters written in code and cipher to Mary by hiding them in the cork of a beer barrel. That way, he and Mary could share plans. Mary's overconfidence in ciphers and codes made her more candid and a bit careless about what she was willing to say in her letters. This proved her undoing. Mary and Babington didn't know that Ballard was telling Walsingham all the plans. Walsingham was also paying the beer seller, who gave him Mary's letters. 
Walsingham had a brilliant man named Philippe who could crack the codes and ciphers to figure out what Mary and her correspondents were really saying. An important letter came from Babington to Mary outlining the plot to kill Queen Elizabeth. Of course, Walsingham knew about the letter and waited to see how Mary would respond. New laws in England made it treason to know about a plot to kill the queen and go along with it. If Mary agreed, she would be guilty of treason and could be sentenced to death. Walsingham waited and waited for Mary's reply. Finally, it came. When Philippe deciphered the part of the letter agreeing to the plot to kill Queen Elizabeth, he knew they had her. So Philippe included a code of his own. Off to the side of that part of the letter, he drew a little gallows. Mary was caught. In her trial, Mary proclaimed her innocence and claimed she was being persecuted because of her religion. But the evidence showed that she had known about and agreed to a plot to kill the queen. She was found guilty and sentenced to death. Elizabeth did not really want to sign the death warrant. The idea of sending an anointed queen to her death haunted Elizabeth and struck at the very core of her own insecurity. After several months, she signed the warrant but said she did not want it carried out. Cecil quickly got hold of the warrant, convened a privy council meeting without the queen's knowledge, and instructed the execution be carried out. Mary was executed 8 February, 1587, nearly 20 years after she had arrived in England. Elizabeth claimed she had never intended the warrant to be carried out. She railed against Cecil. She told anyone who would listen she absolutely regretted the death of her sister queen. But she also must have known that Mary's continued existence in England threatened her reign in her church. Of course, Mary's death didn't end the threats to Elizabeth and her throne. Cecil, Walsingham, and the team continued their spirey to learn all they could about Philip of Spain's plan to launch his armada and invade England. And as William Cecil was finally unable to continue working, he passed the responsibility of keeping England and Elizabeth safe to his son, Robert. Now, Elizabeth's agents weren't always successful. Catholic priest and recruiter Jean Girard was arrested in 1594 and sent to the Tower of London. By 1597, he had convinced his jailers to allow him to receive oranges from members of his family. Seems innocent, right? Well, he used the orange peel to craft rosary and other Catholic worship items so he could hold Catholic services with his fellow Catholic prisoners. And he used the orange juice to write invisible secret messages to family members and friends who were planning his escape. Like lemon juice, orange juice is visible when held over a candle. With oranges and secret writing, Jean Girard was able to accomplish the seemingly impossible task of escaping from the Tower of London. This escape was recognized in 1962 by Time magazine as one of the top 10 prison escapes of all time. Elizabeth's team of spies continued to keep the queen safe from danger until she died of natural causes at nearly age 70. Her ability to die in her bed shows her determination, the success of the Royal Navy that defeated the Armada, possibly the will of God, and the unseen work of a network of agents across Europe and throughout England. Elizabeth owes her success and her survival, at least in part, to the spies. Thank you for joining me for this special look back at the court of Queen Elizabeth I. It's a good reminder that history isn't just something in books or movies. It's part of our lives today. History is now. I'd love to hear from you. So let's explore history together. Thank you.